Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Good morning, all. This, was, this is quite a text, really. As, as we get along in it, we'll, uh, we'll see just exactly what's going on. Jesus is making the statement here that he had overcome the world which indicates that there's some type of a struggle ensuing. Something is going on, not unlike a battle, in the life of Jesus that we, we do, really don't see. We're not seeing it because it's occurring on a plane that we're not that familiar with. But Jesus is having a, an epic struggle against the forces of evil, and he's making this statement close to his death, the time that he's going to be crucified. And he's saying, I have overcome. I've won, is what he's saying. There's been a battle. It's epic in its proportions. But I have won. I have overcome. Now we know from reading the Bible, and we know from our human experience, that there is a, a battle going on between good and evil. The forces of good and evil. If we don't know that, then we're really not aware of the circumstances that we live in. It's happening. It happens all the time. It's happening today. But during the time of Jesus, of course, he was struggling with the devil. The devil is the nemesis of Jesus, his mortal and his spiritual enemy. At this stage of his life, it does not appear, however, that Jesus is winning. But he's saying, I have overcome. He's saying, I've won. I've won. Now, we're standing back and looking at it, and we're thinking, well, has he won? It just doesn't look like he's won. It looks like he's in for more trouble than he's had before. We can conclude from the Scriptures and from our own personal experience that the struggle between good and evil is still going on. It certainly was going on and raging within his life, and today it's raging within the lives of each one of us and in our human society. But Jesus said, I've won. I've overcome. I've met the enemy, and I've, I've fought the fight, and I have won. Now the point is, and that which we need to understand very clearly if we're going to understand our position in this world at all, whether we're religious or not, that is, that, that there is a great struggle going on, a great fight within each one of us, individually, in our hearts. And to the victor go the spoils. If we win, we get the spoils. If we lose, it's going to be disastrous. That's the fight. Now, you don't see that. We don't see that when we're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We really don't see that, do we? And we don't perceive of it until we begin to read the Scriptures and understand what's taking place. There's a fight going on. 
There was a tremendous fight going on in the life of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we get an idea of what, the, what type of battle this is. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that's, they're not physical, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Our antagonist, if it were a story, for instance, if you were reading a story, you'd read, you'd read about an antagonist and a protagonist. Basically, that's the way stories are made up. The antagonist is the enemy, trying to pull everything down and destroy everything. And the protagonist is the hero, the one who has the victory, the one who comes along to deliver those of us who are in, in dire danger. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that the antagonist is the devil. He's always working, trying to get the upper hand. He's in a fight, in a battle in your soul, in your heart, trying to get the upper hand. It says, Be vigilant, be sober, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now that's the antagonist. The protagonist is Jesus. He's the one trying to ward off the enemy and save your soul to preserve you, to, to deliver you from the struggle that you're involved in that will eventually take you down. Now, in, in Romans chapter 5, at verse 21, it says that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord, the protagonist. He's the one. The battlefield where it's being fought is our heart. Now that's, that's what we have to understand. The battlefield isn't around us, isn't our physical circumstance. The battlefield is within ourselves. And you know it just like I know it. That battle goes on every day. It's a struggle to let good overcome evil, isn't it? Certainly it is. And yet, we, we, we uh, sometimes have a hard time understanding that. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, it says, Do you not yet understand that whatsoever enters in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draft? Well, what he was talking about was that some people were saying you need to make sure that you wash your dishes before you eat. Well, it was a, it was a, a ceremony with them. It was a ritual. They were saying if you, if you don't wash the dishes in a ceremonial way, then you're going to let evil into your life. Jesus is saying, don't you understand this? That's not what, what goes into your mouth comes out in the draft. You expel it. He said, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. Let me tell you, friend, that's the field of battle. That's the battlefield. That's where the fight's going on. And he's saying the things that come out of your heart, they defile you. Out of your heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands, they don't defile a man. Good and evil spring from that source, the source of the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Most people, when they think about it, as a matter of fact, I'll go further than that. 
the majority of individuals, when they think about what's going on, understand this very clearly. They know that it's the heart that determines the type of person they're going to be. Whether they win against the force of evil or lose against that and succumb to it. It's a place of understanding. That's what the, where the heart is. That's where you understand things. That's where you conceive of things and you get, you get a handle on life. It's in your heart. In Matthew 13 verse 15, Jesus said, This people's heart is wax fat, wax gross. Their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see their eyes and hear their ears, and should understand with their heart, and I should heal them. Understand with the heart. The heart is a place for our treasures. That's where we keep everything that we think is sacred. Now, understand this, that your heart contains your treasure, period. Everything you have that you place any value on comes from the intent and purpose of your heart, basically. If you love money, it springs from your love of money in your heart. If you love good things, that's where it comes from. If you love evil things, that's where it comes from. It's coming out of the heart. Matthew twelve thirty five says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. Now that's the place my mother used to tell me idle, thing, idle hands are the devil's workshop. But it's also an idle mind that's not on guard is the devil's workshop. Because this is the place where the devil works. You remember when Jesus was on his way to the cross, Calvary, and he had all of his disciples with him, including one bad apple, one bad egg, and that was Judas Iscariot. And the text is, and you wonder about this guy, you wonder what's going on with this guy. What, why isn't he seeing what everybody else is seeing? Doesn't he like his friend Jesus? What's, what's, what's the deal with this guy? And yet we're, we're given a little snapshot of who he is when in John chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus was invited to a supper of a friend's house. And it says, After supper ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to destroy him to betray him. What happened? The devil put something in this man's heart. The devil came in and that's where the devil works in your heart. It's a place of evil thoughts. Matthew chapter 9 verse 4, Jesus had healed someone, healed a man as a matter of fact that needed to be healed and he looked around at the people and you know what he said to them? He just looked at them and he said uh, he said he knew their thoughts and he said why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Evil was in their heart. It's, the heart is a place where we can conceive of adultery. Before you do anything in this world, you, you determine what you're going to do in your heart. And after you've conceived of it, after it's all worked out, then you do it. You act on it. That's why it's said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his own heart. So adultery sprang from the fact that, that this individual, whatever individual he's talking about, has already conceived of it, has already agreed with it in his heart. But it's also, the heart is also the place, that's because it's a battleground. 
The heart is also the place for God and for good things. It's also there. And yet there's a struggle, isn't there? Okay. It is a place where God will plant His Word, His seed, for good things to grow. You've heard of the, the parable that Jesus has taught, Matthew 13, other texts. And in this text in particular, Luke chapter 8, where Jesus is talking about the planting of the seed. And that some fell by the wayside, the birds ate it. Some fell among hard ground, it was shallow ground, and it didn't take any seed, and the sun scorched it. Some, some planted was planted, however, in good ground. And Luke says that the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart have heard the word of God, they keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So good things can grow out of the heart as well, as well as the evil things, obviously. It is a place where love comes from. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39, they asked Jesus a question, the lawyers and the Pharisees. And the question they asked was, what's the greatest commandment in the law? You know, Jesus made a statement that seems to be all-encompassing, and at the same time, it's definitive. It pinpoints some points about the law. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God. That was it. You know where the love comes from? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Love comes from... That's a good place, isn't it? It's a good place because it produces love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In the heart, the heart also produces things such as forgiveness. You know, there's not much, of, much that's prettier or more attractive than forgiveness, is there? Someone does something wrong to someone, and you forgive. Jesus said in the prayer in Matthew chapter 5, in the prayer that they said, teach us how to pray, and Jesus said, and one of the, one of the points that he made in the prayer is that we're to forgive our enemies as he forgives us. If you don't forgive your enemy, you don't get any forgiveness yourself. But the forgiveness comes from the heart. So in Matthew 18 and verse 35, he says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you, if you from your heart forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. You have to forgive from the heart his trespass. Now the goal of the devil in this battle that's going on right now, it's going on right now. You can't see it, but I can guarantee you one thing. You can feel it, can't you? There's always a temptation, isn't there? There's always temptation. Things that you know that you ought to do that are good, and at the same time, you're not sure you want to do them. Sometimes you're being drawn away into areas that you know you shouldn't go, so the struggle is always there, isn't it? To say things, to feel things, to do things, good or evil. Now the purpose of the devil is, and I don't know why, I'll tell you right now, I've studied this all of my life. I don't know why the devil is like he is. I have no earthly or heavenly idea of why the devil is like he is. Why he wants to do this. Is it jealousy? It is envy? Is it just an innate evilness in him? We look around at our fellow human beings and we wonder, well, is, is humanity just 
normally, naturally evil because the evil things that are happening, and they happen all the time. In our lives, evil happens. But why is the de- why does the devil, what, what does he think he can get out of this? What's the end game for the devil? Does he think he's more brilliant, more powerful? I don't know. I, I'll tell you I don't know, but I know what's going on because I can feel it. And you know what's going on too. The goal of the devil is to separate us from God and to enlist us in doubt, confusion, and rebellion. That's his goal. He wants to get us into a world that is sullied, a world that is obscene, a world that's dirty, a world that's nasty, a world that is unattractive, a world that is defiled. He wants us to live in a world that's full of trash. That's what the devil wants. But you say, well, it doesn't look so bad around here. We're not talking about your physical world. Sure, everything's going well in the United States of America. We're not in a recession or depression yet. Everything seems to be going along fine. But what's happening in your heart? That's where the real struggle is. It's not around you. It's not in the things that are extraneous. It's in your heart. What's going on in your heart? Titus chapter 3 at verse 3 says, We ourselves were also sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Luke, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The devil's purpose is to get you to hate your brother, get you to hate your neighbor, get you to despise God, get you to question God, get you to not have any confidence in God, make you think that this is all there is what you see around you. What you should see is what's inside you. That's why he's saying, that's the battle. We're having a battle. We're having a struggle. And the devil seemed to be winning. Right? He he intends to separate us from God now and throughout all eternity. That's his purpose. Again, I don't know why. What kind of guy is this? All I can read about is what he's trying to do. But why? I don't have any idea why. But I know it's happening. Yet people are being separated, severed from God, and are living trashy lives, defiled lives, obscene lives, full of, full of things that are they're nasty and, and, and uh, certainly distasteful to God. In Colossians 1 verse 21, it says, You that were sometimes alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, you are alienated by wicked works. He said, you know where works come from? The heart. That's where they come from. James 4, 4 says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. For whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We know who the enemy is. He wants us on his side. Be an enemy of God. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, And you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. My friend, here's the goal. That's the goal. That's where, well, that's where the devil's taking us. 
He's taking us down into the grave with no hope. That's where he's taking us. That's where he wants us to go. He wants us to get to that place where there is no hope. But before that final curtain falls and before it fell, and that's the final curtain, before that final curtain fell, Jesus stepped into the fight. Wait a minute. Jesus stepped down on this earth and he stepped into that battle. Don't think that it was a physical battle because Jesus said at one time, I could call for 12 legions of angels and we could, we could get this over with in a, in a flash. In a moment, we could take care of it. That's not the battle. The battle is in the heart. You know what Jesus wanted? He wanted your heart. That's his battleground. That's the devil's battleground. That's, where, that's what he wants. That's where the fight's raging. That's where the fight was raging then. Jesus stepped down onto this earth right into the midst of the fight. He did. To champion our cause. Romans 5.21 says, As sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So He came to defeat the devil's purpose. In 1 Peter 2.21 it says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow His steps. Who did no sin, Jesus fought the battle that we're talking about, that you're fighting right now. He fought that battle on that battlefield, and He won. Well, let's see. It says, He did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, He reviled not again. When He, when he suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judges righteously. Who, His own self, bare our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Yes, Let's think about it. This text says, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus said. I have overcome the world. When He said this, before, before He actually finished His work, He said, I've overcome the world. But yes, He was suffering the cruelty of the cross. He would. He would go to the cross. Yet He said, I've overcome. Yes, He was pronounced dead by His tormentors. He was. They, took, they put him on the cross. They nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. They suspended him between heaven and earth. And he died. They put a spear in his side. Yet he said, I've overcome. Yes, he was buried beneath the earth in a borrowed tomb. In a borrowed man's burial vault. And yet on the third day, just as he promised, he shook off his burial clothes and he stepped out into God's sunlight he won the day. He was the conqueror. He did win, didn't he? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all day, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. The thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The most momentous battle of mankind had just been fought. The greatest battle that mankind will ever be privy to had just been, just been waged. And Jesus said, 
he had overcome. Single-handedly, he averted disaster for teeming millions and billions of lost souls. He righted the ship. The ship of humanity was going down. It was sinking. Jesus righted that ship and put it back afloat of humanity. As a conquering hero, the darling of mankind, it was expected, it should have been expected, because he won that type of battle. We've all seen the, the uh, movies. We've all thought about it in our own lives that when everything looks the dimmest, the worst, and the darkest, in comes the hero and wins the day, right? When, when a battle is being lost by certain good forces and it looks like the enemy is prevailing, then in comes reinforcements. In steps the hero and saves the day, right? And we all applaud that. So now then, Jesus went into the grave, and when He came out of the grave, when He came out resurrected, then He should have been met by throngs, teeming throngs of worshipers, right? He went in the grave, He fought the fight, He won the day. Where are all these people that He had healed? All the caregivers. Where are all the multitudes of those who worshipped Him and cared about Him, why weren't they standing outside the tomb waiting for Him to come out and raise Him to victory? Why wasn't there a ticker tape parade for Him when He stepped out of the grave? When He walked out into the beaming, bright, yellow sunlight of God's earth, spread forth His hands, where, where was everybody to see Him and to laud Him and adore Him because he had won. Isn't that what we do with, with winners? Don't we? When they prevail. You know, if a, if a person just wins a foot race, usually there's people at the end shouting and, and, and going on about what a great race he, he ran or she ran and won. Should have happened. But the humble victor stepped out of the open earth with his arms outstretched to... Nobody. Nobody's there. Thousands should have been cheering Him as the sun rose into His glory. No ticker type parade for Jesus. How about people putting Him on their, their shoulders and carrying Him around and, and letting Him hold up a, a victor's cup? Where are those who put Him on His shoulders? Where were His own disciples saying, You're back. We knew You'd come back. You've won. We've won. We've got the victory. And raised Him, hoisted Him on their shoulders and said, what a, what, a great, what a great thing happened. They'd want to lift Him above their heads, wouldn't they? Carry Him through their familiar streets. They would be chanting His name in absolute adoration. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. You did it. You did it. You, you overcame for all of us. You won the battle. They would be calling for a special fee, a special speech. Speech, speech. They would have given him a dinner, a victory dinner, wouldn't they? Here was the greatest battle ever fought for humanity and the victor, Jesus, and he steps out to the eerie silence of this world. Nobody there to greet him. Nobody to take him to a big dinner, celebrate his victory and ask him for a speech. You know, he did have a dinner, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't a victory dinner. We know 
that there were a few that were impressed. We do know that. We know that uh, when he when he was raised from the dead, there were three women that came early in the morning to kind of tidy up the body. They were going to put some spices on it to make sure it didn't have a bad odor. Mark tells us about them, Mark chapter 16. He says there, there are three women, he names them. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. Empty tomb. So they ran back to tell the apostles, and the apostles wouldn't believe him. They came running back, and he wasn't there. No one to greet him. No one to hoist him on their shoulders. No one to, to lead him in a victory parade, marching up down the streets, shouting his name. No, nobody there. Yet this man, Jesus, the Son of God, had just won the greatest, greatest victory on this earth. The earth will ever know. And he was greeted by the morning silence. Maybe the birds were singing, but there was nobody there to meet him. His disciples ran to the tomb and they were stunned. They were confused. He was later invited to a dinner because there were a couple of guys walking on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us about that in Luke 24. They were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus joined up with them. They said they were all downcast. They said things are not going well here. And he asked them about it and they said, Did, are you just a stranger? Don't you know? They said, don't you know what happened? Then they related the story about him going to the cross. And he had, they invited him in to have a meal with them. They weren't really sure who he was at, the, at that point. Then after the meal, he took bread and broke it. And that's when they recognized him, by the breaking of bread. But even at that, they said, oh, we're not sure. But he had the battle scars. He fought the battle, he had the scars. He had them in his hands, and he had them in his feet, and he had a spear scar in his side. Still open wounds from the fight that he had just won for us. Later on, he met with them again, and it was Thomas who said, I, I don't I really don't think I don't I don't think he's back. Nobody's carrying him around. Nobody's nobody's exalting him. Nobody's hailing him as the victor. Nobody's doing that. So he comes back and Thomas says, I don't I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my fingers in the wounds. In the wounds. What what do you do? A, a man comes back or a woman comes back from, from battle. And they've got scars. And somebody says, I don't think you're back. I've got, to, I've got to poke my fingers in your scars, in your wounds. I've got to see. That's what happened to Jesus. Well, he wasn't treated as a victor, was he? Not at all. As a matter of fact, even after he rose from the dead, and they, they decided that maybe he had, they hadn't seen him specifically enough to really let it sink in, that he had done this momentous thing, this enormous thing for all humanity. They, they didn't think. Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. That's how, that's how thrilled he was with Jesus being back. I think I'll go fishing. He got some other guys to go with him. Six of them went with him to go fishing. And then Jesus appeared on the shore and he invited them to breakfast and fixed breakfast for them. Well now, this doesn't seem like anybody was really concerned about him being back. Nobody crowned him. Nobody gave him a warm welcome. Nobody sat him down on a place of dignity and exaltation. Nobody. But someone did. 
someone crowned him as the victor. Hebrews chapter 2, that verse 9 says, talking about God, you made him a little lower of the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, and you did set him over the works of your hands. Somebody crowned him. As a matter of fact, somebody gave him a warm welcome back. In Philippians chapter 2, at verse 9, it says, Wherefore God also has exalted you. Somebody welcomed him back. His father did. Exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Someone welcomed him back. And someone set him down beside him in glory. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, Which he wrought in Christ, talking about the Father, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in his heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. We didn't crown him when he got back. We didn't meet him at that open grave site. We didn't carry him through the streets. We didn't give him a ticker tape parade. We didn't hoist him on our shoulders. We didn't say, come sit on the dais with us and we'll give you a great dinner, a great supper, and we'll show you how much we appreciate you. But someone did. His father did. His father crowned him. His father gave him a warm welcome back. And his father set him down at the place of dignity and superiority at his own right hand. Someone did. We should have. But we didn't. Why would we? Because he just won the greatest battle that this world has ever known. You didn't see it. I didn't see it. It was going on in the life of Jesus, in his heart. And the battle now is raging, and it's raging in your heart, and he can step in, and he will, because his father has sent him back to step in on the battlefield with us and to win the victory for us through his son Jesus. That's the battle. That's the fight. That's the fight that can be won and will be won by Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing that song of invitation.